This is Pod Academy, and I'm Amanda Barnes. A huge international drive against female genital mutilation, or FGM, by women's rights and health campaigners has resulted in political pressure being brought to bear on African governments to eliminate the practice. I'm talking to Kiralee Pells, policy officer from the Young Lives Research Study at Oxford University's International Development Department. Kiralee, a Young Lives study looked at FGM in Ethiopia and the efforts the government's been taking to eliminate it there. First of all, can you give our listeners an overview of the traditional practices in Ethiopia? There's considerable variation within the country between different ethnic and religious groups and between the different regions of the country in terms of the prevalence of FGM, which form of FGM and at what age it occurs. Uh, For example, it's less common in urban areas. In 2011, the proportion of uh, girls in, in urban areas who underwent FGM was around 15% compared to 24% in rural areas. And then between the different areas of the country, this ranged from 10% in Addis Ababa, the capital city, to about 60% in the FR region in the east of the country. And there's also differences in terms of what type of FGM is is practised. In the north of the country, it tends to be performed on girls shortly after birth and it takes the form of clitoridectomy, which is the partial or total removal of the clitoris. The other form practised in the northern region of the country is excision, which again involves the removal of the clitoris, but also uh, the removal of either just the inner labia or the inner and outer labia. In the south of the country, it, FGM it tends to be performed just before puberty and is very much linked um, in terms of adolescence and preparation for marriage. And the form practised here uh, tends to be clitoridectomy again. In the east of the country, in the Afar and Somali regions of the country, um, infibulation is practised, and this is what's often viewed as the most extreme form of the practice, where both the clitoris and the inner and outer labia are cut off, and then the resulting wound is sewn nearly shut, which just leaves a a small hole through which urine and uh, menstrual blood can pass. What's the Ethiopian government doing at the moment to try and get parents to stop subjecting their daughters to FGM? The Ethiopian government has taken a very strong stance against FGM. It's designated it as a harmful traditional practice and it's prohibited by the 2005 Criminal Code. And this sets out a series of punishments, including fines and imprisonment, for both those who perform the cutting but also those who commission ceremonies, whether that's parents or other members of the community. And it's also a crime to publicly encourage uh, the practising of of FGM. Alongside the legislative efforts, the government has promoted a wide range of other preventative actions. This includes advocacy campaigns within schools and in the media and encouraging local associations to also be active in promoting uh, knowledge around adverse health and, and social consequences. 
Alongside the government, there's also very active civil society um, NGOs in have been active in in trying to combat FGM, both national NGOs and international NGOs. And there's a national network of organisations which are working together to try and combat the practice. So, how much have things changed there then? Well, within the country, um, the prevalence of FGM is declining although quite slowly and also uh, very, there's variation between the different regions. For example, the percentage of mothers who had one daughter who'd been circumcised in 2000 was 51.7%, but by 2005 this had reduced to 37.7%. But the greatest change was seen in urban areas, such as in Addis Ababa, and was much smaller in other more remote uh, rural areas such as Oromia and the SNNP region. Given that the practice is criminalised in Ethiopia and the the, uh, sanctions can be quite heavy-handed, do you think that those um, reports of its decline are reliable? I think that's a big challenge for data collection. The most recent uh, demographic health survey didn't collect data on FGM precisely because it is an illegal practice. Instead, what researchers have to rely on in survey data is often around perceptions. So do you believe that it's wrong to have your daughter circumcised? And of course, as we can imagine, there's often a big difference between what people might say that they prefer and what's actually going on. And indeed, Young Lives Research has shown that one of the results of having strong punishment for FGM is that the practice may be being driven underground and taking different forms as families find alternative ways to navigate around the ban. So despite the number of girls undergoing FGM having dropped, possibly quite dramatically, nearly a quarter of all women still say that they've had it done to them, according to the Young Lives report. So... You're still talking about millions of people affected. Is this because there's been a problem of getting the message across or is there something else going on? No, I don't think it's a matter of of knowledge. Within the qualitative interviews that we conducted with children and their caregivers and community leaders, there was widespread knowledge of the ban on FGM and also people were aware of the health messages that have been communicated through the media, um, the adverse health consequences of FGM. So I don't think that it's a matter of ignorance. Instead, I think it's a a question of needing to understand what actually drives the reasons why parents or girls themselves might choose to undergo the practice. Um, Now, this can vary, again, between the different regions of of the country, But most commonly, uh, FGM is very much linked with marriage and is seen as an essential preparation for marriage because it's seen as ensuring girls' moral and social development. So rather than being seen as something that's harmful to girls' well-being, it's actually seen as being protective. It's seen as um, ensuring girls don't have sex before marriage and therefore their reputation within the community is ensured, they're seen as pure, and then 
they'll be able to get a husband. And this is particularly important in contexts where families are very poor and there's limited education opportunities for girls or limited work opportunities because marriage is the way in which uh, families can ensure that their girls will continue to be provided for. So do you think the threat of prosecution and the criminalisation has been a major deterrent or not? I think it plays a role and I think that um, certainly people are aware of the punishment and express fear of being punished. But I think because of the strength of of the rationale um, as part of part of the cultural context, I think that um, instead what's happening is that the nature of, of, of FGM is changing. So for example, some of the girls within the research talked about how instead of the the ceremony taking place during the day, these were taking place at night now to try and avoid the attention of local officials. And this actually could place girls more at risk if it's taking place in the dark um, or with less experienced practitioners, for example. Well, there seems to be quite a build-up of uh, support for the idea of zero tolerance for FGM. For example, there's now a, a... and an international day, which is called the International Day of Zero Tolerance for FGM. Do you think that that idea of zero tolerance is counterproductive, or do you think that it is such a traumatic and abusive practice that it should be completely criminalised and people prosecuted? I think you have to start with what's going to be the most effective strategy for uh, eliminating the practice or what what approach is most likely to work and I think there's increasingly more evidence that just relying on legislation or a very punitive approach isn't working as well as Young Lives uh, research in Ethiopia there's also evidence from Senegal that came to the same conclusion that having legislation that's then implemented in a, in a very harsh way can actually lead to the practice being driven underground and more risk for girls so I think instead the starting point is is better to work with communities to engage in in processes of of dialogue that involve the whole community, not just officials, because as with the Young Lions research in in Ethiopia, we saw that officials were very adamant that FGM should be banned and were taking a strong stance, but that didn't necessarily mean that other members of the community um, believed the same thing. So you need to involve the whole community and to make it um, a community-owned process rather than a top-down imposition from outside the community. That said, I don't necessarily think that it's wrong to have something in law because I think that can provide a useful framework and set an important standard. But I think it's how you then go about implementing that and the fact that you don't just rely on legislation alone but you need a whole range of measures that go alongside that. What sort of things have you come across people reporting to Young Lives about what's happened to girls that have have not had it done to them in the community and the, the kind of stigma that results? Girls have described a lot of peer pressure to undergo the practice and that girls who've not 
undergone um, circumcision have been have been bullied and their fears whether or not these are realized we don't know but their fears that these girls won't get a husband and so this is why girls were also reporting that they themselves were organizing circumcision ceremonies even though their parents weren't forcing them to do so they were arranging them themselves in order to make sure that they wouldn't uh, face the stigma and sense of exclusion from the community. Um, some activists would probably say that sort of respecting traditional cultures, no excuse for allowing women's rights to be violated. Would you disagree with that argument? I think that we can't see culture as a static or a monolithic phenomenon instead culture is dynamic and it changes and also within the culture there's different practices and, and different voices and I think it's a question of working with different aspects of the culture that might celebrate women or women's roles within the community and finding ways of promoting those and I think it, that's something even within the language of FGM we have to be careful of Internationally, um, FGM has become the term that's used, but if you go into a community and you talk about mutilation, you're immediately going to put people on the defensive because you're going in there telling them that what they're doing is wrong, even though they themselves have have a strong uh, rationale for doing so. And I think that's then going to be detrimental to trying to build understanding and build support for gradually eliminating the practice. So I think it's better to to work with people rather than creating tension and potentially driving things underground and making it more dangerous. Earlier you were talking about some of the consequences, social and economic and psychological. There certainly are significant consequences for people's well-being, but do you think they really should take priority over what really amounts to kind of quite severe child abuse and cruelty? I, I personally think it should be eliminated as quickly as possible, but I think you have to think about what strategies are most likely to lead to that happening and what is going to be most successful and most more sustainable. And although legislation has existed in a number of countries for several years now banning FGM, the rate of change has actually been very slow. And there's also limited evidence on what actually works in terms of engaging with communities and bringing about real and lasting change. So I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's that you need to build more opportunities for girls particularly in terms of education and in terms of livelihood opportunities. Because if girls have other opportunities, there's going to be less need for a a practice that's seen as securing their social and economic well-being because they're going to have other other routes to doing that. And indeed, in Young Lives Research, um, we see very strongly that education is changing children's roles and changing aspirations for the future and what's expected of boys and girls for example caregivers talking about 
considering it to be more acceptable for girls to get married later and to have an education first and also to, to find work. So I think you need to build education and livelihood opportunities for girls and alongside that work with communities to try and change um, social norms. But changing social norms does take a long time and it can't be forced because it will then just be driven underground and there will be a fierce backlash. So if you want it to be successful, you need to bring both the social and the um, economic side alongside the cultural and work with all aspects within the community. There's been quite a lot in the media recently about uh, FGM being practised here in the UK and the government having not prosecuted any caregivers or parents who've had the um, process done to their daughters. Do you think that they might be perceived a bit of hypocrisy with northern governments lecturing governments like the Ethiopian government about eliminating FGM when they're really not doing very much about it here in the north? I think maybe some listeners might be thinking about that. I think one thing to mention first of all is it's often assumed to be northern governments or northern-based activists lecturing the south, but they're a very focal African women and women's rights organisation who are leading the way really in, in campaigning against FGM and also working with communities and perhaps have a a greater voice and greater respect within their communities because they come from those communities and, and understand those communities and people know know them. So I think it's important, first of all, to not set up a sort of false uh, north-south dichotomy. But returning to, to your question, I think it's a very difficult question for the government and for the police, for, firstly because it's something that's quite hard to detect you do also have to think about the consequences of prosecution because there is a danger then that women who need help won't come forward and, and seek the health care that they need because they're, they're um, scared of being prosecuted or, or getting into trouble. So I can understand that there's something in law and it's frustrating because it's seen as not being implemented, but at the same time... I think it's important that it doesn't actually have an unintended consequence that stops um, girls or stops women coming forward for help. So if there are three things that you think that people involved with uh, communities in countries like Ethiopia should be thinking about, what would those your sort of three points be for the policy makers and practitioners on the ground? Firstly, to not rely on legislation alone, um, but to think about a, a broader spectrum of approaches, which are indeed taking place in Ethiopia. But I think sometimes there is a focus on the law to the neglect of other approaches, such as health care and communicating health messages in a way that are understood locally and that also encourage women who have undergone FGM to come forward for help. As we've seen in the Young Lives research, a very heavy-handed approach can actually put girls more at risk by driving practices underground. Secondly, the need to work with communities to not rely on a top-down approach, but to involve the whole community, not just officials, but children, parents, other members of the community, 
because social norms can't be changed by just individuals because else that sense of stigma and that sense of exclusion is going to prevent change being sustainable. So you need to build support within the community and to find other ways and other approaches. It depends within the community whether FGM's more a private matter that takes place after birth or whether it's more a public ceremony as it is in some places in the south of Ethiopia. Uh, but one, one approach that has been used within communities is finding other ways of celebrating girls' transitions to adolescence and to adulthood, finding ways that, that don't involve um, cutting. And then thirdly, to not just focus on FGM in isolation as a, as a single issue, but to think about it or to develop strategies that um, encompass a range of areas of intervention. As I was saying earlier about the importance of promoting um, access to quality education for girls, both primary but also secondary, and then on to training uh, programmes or access to further education, because that op- offers girls opportunities to to study and to delay marriage and hopefully to find uh, livelihood opportunities that reduce their dependence on men and on the need for, for getting married. And alongside, alongside that, you need the healthcare, reproductive information... Um, and building opportunities for political participation and women's voices within the community. All of these areas together can help reduce the, the underlying rationale for FGM. That was Kiralee Powells from Oxford University's Department of International Development talking to Pod Academy about the Young Lives Studies finding on FGM. Kiralee, thank you very much for joining us today. 